sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We know from, from past experience watching Mueller that he is keenly sensitive to media narratives and how media uh, tend to cover himself and his team. But the question I have is why should an independent, uh, supposedly impartial investigator like Mueller care what the, the media is saying, especially if his work speaks for itself? Democrats have got to stop obsessing over something that never happened and start engaging with the president to fix some of the real problems that are happening right in front of their faces, like the problem at the border. We'll continue to call on Mexico and take actions necessary to see to it that Mexico does their job to ensure that this mass exodus and humanitarian crisis comes to an end. And now, Stacy Washington. Hey there, welcome back to the program. I, we had someone hold over on the phones from last hour. Uh, just a quick programming note, we're gonna have Jordan McGillis. He's gonna join us today um, to talk about this new bill, this end run around the president pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. The Democrats want to stop the impact of that action by forcing Congress to create laws to force us to comply with those agreements, even though the president has pulled out. So he's going to join us to update us on that status of that bill and uh, what what exactly all that means for us. But right now, Malcolm in Tennessee, thanks for holding on and happy Friday to you. Hey, uh, yeah, this is uh, Malcolm Bird, and I wanted to talk to you about the uh, hip hop music in connection with. Titus 2 in the Bible. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but uh, it, it, it uh, definitely says that the women should stay home for the children and uh, take care of the children and teach the children, you know, to be chaste. And I'm not quoting it exactly, but I'm sure you know it. Mm-hmm, I do. And I, do, I, I wonder how that would affect... Uh, uh, hip hop, if if uh, that started happening, children don't have any. Uh, I mean, many of them don't don't have any restraints. Uh, they don't know how to be restrained and what to be restrained on. Mm. And uh, so I, I'm I'm just I think that we'll uh, uh, we we'll have not much increase not uh, much increase in our morality in this country until that should happen. Okay. I, I, okay. I appreciate that comment. And I want to give anyone who's listening, who's not aware of the scripture he's talking to, Malcolm is referring to Titus two. Um, and it starts off doing good for the sake of the gospel. You however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them a good example by doing what is good. And your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Um, so what Malcolm is saying is a lack of mothers devoted to the care and maintenance of not just their husbands, but the home and the children is what has resulted in so many kids having access to this horrible music and there not being an outcry about the degradation that is being experienced. And I, I couldn't agree more. 
Um, and I say that as someone who I, I work part time out of our home, uh, but I haven't been a stay at home mom since our oldest daughter. When when we had her, I quit working and, and I've been home with them since then. Um, I, I have to say it's not just the women. It's the men, too. Um, the men are actually abdicating their responsibility, abdicating their responsibility by not being the head of the household. In a household where there are children and a woman and no man, the man has abdicated his responsibility to lead that household. And he is actually at fault He, as the head of the household and as the father of those children. He is ultimately responsible for what happens to the woman he impregnated and the children that he fathered. And so uh, uh, many, many homes in the inner city, the woman is receiving government benefits and is in the home 24-7, but without proper guidance and leadership and without a proper moral attitude, moral rectitude, without any of that, you can be there all day and, and your kids can still turn out horribly and listen to rap music. So that's not to say that all single mothers are horrible or that all single mothers are in that situation by you know their own singular fault, but there are a lot of players in this and and while we're castigating women for prioritizing working outside of the home over taking care of their children and their families and their husbands, we must also talk about the lack of leadership by the men in those households. Some of the households completely lack leadership. There's no man there at all. And others, the man is there, but they have abdicated their leadership role to the woman or simply they're just kind of absentee, but they're there physically. Um, so I think it's a great point to make. And and. All of us have to continually check and recheck to make sure we're in the role that God ordained for us. Um, but in in certain segments of our society, I think it's 72% of black households are head by a single mother. Um, that kind of rampant abdication by men that just basically go out there and spread your seed as far and wide as you can and don't take care of any of it. That is the root of this problem. Women allowing this to happen by participating in premarital sex and having babies. Um, again, it, it's it's a multifaceted issue. But I do I, I'll never uh, agree that rap isn't a part of it. But it it it's it plays a role. But so do these other factors. Malcolm, thank you for that comment and for taking us back to the scripture, which is where we should always uh, originate the the ideas on how to fix our problems. Um, and that was Titus two. Verses 1 through 8. Titus 2, verses 1 through 8, if you want to check out that scripture. Um, so now we're, I want to I go, I, I did talk about Mexico getting slapped with tariffs. I talked about uh, the emergency meeting. Well, actually, let me see if there's anything more here. I want to give you the details. Um, so Mexican Foreign Minister Jesus Seed will reach out to Jared Kushner for relief and assistance, but I don't think the president's going to actually participate in that. Reuters actually reported uh, this morning that Mexico's president asked Trump to have U.S. officials meet with the Mexican foreign minister in Washington on Friday to seek a solution that benefits both nations. Now, the announcement that there was uh, incoming tariffs coming up in a few days here actually rattled the U.S. stock index futures and Asian stock markets, the Mexican peso, actually tumbled on the news, including the shares of Japanese automakers who ship cars from Mexico to the United States. Uh, now, I know there was a background press call um, that was with uh, Trade Representative Lighthizer and some others, um, Mulvaney, some others, and they were all on there. And one of the reporters asked if this had anything to do with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, the USMCTA. This does not 
actually have anything to do with that. So this doesn't change any of the parameters to that agreement. And remember, that's an agreement in principle because Congress has to ratify any trade agreements and they have not even begun to move to get that done. But what the president and his administration are saying is these tariffs are being implemented using a different authority, an emergency executive power that is yielded and and given to the president by Congress. And what they plan to do is um, try to take care of this backlog. If they can get Mexico to stop the influx, they can take care of the backlog of 80,000 people being held in custody, an average of 4,500 arriving daily, overwhelming the ability of border patrol officials officials to handle them. And they apprehended, as I told you, a group of 1,036 migrants who came in a group, a single group. Now, Mexico's seed said that if Trump goes through with his threat to impose the tariff, it would be disastrous. Now, it would be disastrous for them. It would be totally disastrous for them. He said the normal response would be for Mexico to mirror the U.S. tariffs, but that would lead to a trade war. So White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney said which they, he was asked which products from Mexico will be affected by the tariffs. And he said all of them. He said it's an urgent problem. We're interested in seeing the Mexican government act tonight or tomorrow. Shares of Toyota Motor Corporation, Nissan Motor, Honda Motor all fell around 3%, while Mazda Motor Company fell nearly 7%. All four of those automakers operate vehicle assembly plants in Mexico. So um, I just want to give a little commentary here on this because I, I think it's kind of annoying. Everybody's, as soon as they hear the word tariffs, everybody starts, you know, their nervous tick. No tariffs, no tariffs. This is about stopping the inflow of illegal aliens. And, and if one carrot doesn't work and one stick doesn't work, because he's already had his people go down there and talk to this Mexican president. He's already agreed to stop it. He agreed to a bunch of different concessions, but it's not working. Their southern border is wide open for these people to travel through. What exactly do we expect the president to do? If everything he suggests, you're like, no, that won't work. You know what's the worst thing in the world? You know what I'm going to say. People who don't have any solutions, but they're constantly going, no, 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 don't do that. What do they want the president to do? Please tell me. Please tell me what should he do? So nobody, nobody has actually really kind of encompassed the entire paradigm here. Companies and businesses in the United States who enjoy this cheap labor and don't care anything about the hard, hardships and suffering of Americans are willing to go to just about any length to keep this inflow of, of labor coming in because it depresses wages for those who are here, who are skilled, who are American citizens, who expect to have two 15-minute breaks a day and a 30-minute lunch, you know, who expect to have some kind of medical benefits, et cetera, et cetera. They know it's easier to hire somebody who barely speaks English that you can just tell, sit there, assemble this, or sit there and push these buttons, or run this back and forth, or pick these berries, or whatever you tell them to do, and they'll do it for 10 hours a day for a quarter of what you would pay an American and they won't complain. They won't take any breaks. They also won't wash their hands. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's a certain kind of avarice and greed that's present here that nobody was, is really addressing greedy companies that are literally, they're just, they're like, I got to maximize my profits no matter what. And who cares what this does to American citizens? They're as much a part of this as the Mexican government is in allowing these people to travel through. The nation of Mexico has actually been able to, through this ridiculous uh, strategy, this ingenious strategy, 
They've been able to influence local U.S. laws, overwhelm local U.S. political structures. The American-Mexican zone penetrates into the U.S., provides a borderless operation uh, opening for migration, trade, commerce, education of Mexican citizens through the utilization of U.S. social and economic systems. Think of it. Mexican government doesn't run a good K-12 through public education system. But if they can get their kids here illegally and get them American educations, well, I mean, why not? If your neighbor lived in a $20 million compound and they left the door open all the time and some of your other neighbors were using the pool, watching the, the, the televisions, accessing the Wi-Fi, if it basically became like a big pseudo rec center for your neighborhood, of course you'd go over there and use that $20,000 wolf range to cook your gourmet luncheons. And if you had a big group of people coming into town, you'd host them over there. You would do it once you had been apprised of the situation and, and made comfortable to know that nothing, no repercussions would be done to you. The police won't be called. The neighbors themselves won't even say anything. They're barely there. So you go over and you use this property to the fullest extent of the law. Anytime you need anything, you just go right over there. You find out that the pantry's always stocked. You stop buying groceries. You just go shop over there. Everything you need is located right next to you. And all you have to do is go over and take it. How many people wouldn't take advantage of that situation? And that is what's happening with Mexico and now Guatemala and Honduras. And if we don't put a stop to it, we'll just be working like little rats on a wheel, paying all these taxes, and they're getting the benefits. They are getting the benefits. So it's, it's correct for him to do this. So America is actually already training, educating, employing, and eventually increasing the standard of living for the entire nation state of Mexico. It is the fastest way Mexico can gain wealth. I mean, what's the alternative for them? They have to build out an entire societal system of education, investment, infrastructure, and commerce, and they have to do it with a people that aren't used to those things. They have to do it with the Mexican drug cartels who aren't there to improve the lives of citizens. They're there to make money and kill people, to ensnare Americans into the drug trade by getting them addicted to drugs. That's what they're there for. They're evil. So anytime the Mexican government tries to implement some kind of social services program, they have to fight their own people and they have to fight the drug cartels. So why not just use the open border into our country and let those who want a better life travel here to get it and they don't have to worry. They're off the hook. I mean, this is the ultimate deadbeat neighbor multiplied times. I don't know how many millions of Mexicans there are, but definitely like a big, big number. All right. We'll be back with our next guest, Jordan McGillis, right after this. It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, health care, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong, it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MediShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. 
Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You know, one of the reasons the fertility rate in America has been dropping is due to the rising cost of raising a child. Every few years, the Department of Agriculture recalculates the cost to raise a child in America. In fact, there's a USDA cost of raising a child calculator that you can use to personalize your calculations. One of the biggest factors in the increased cost of raising a child is due to child care costs. The cost of child care alone, when adjusted for inflation, has climbed nearly twice as fast as other prices since the recession ended in 2009. On the other hand, the cost for housing has remained fairly constant over the years, and some costs for basic items have actually decreased slightly due to advances in agriculture and technology. One of the biggest variables in cost has to do with where you live in the country and how much you earn. The Department of Agriculture estimates that the average cost of raising a child to age 18 is $245,000. However, high-income families who live in the urban Northeast are projected to spend nearly $455,000 to raise their child. By contrast, low-income rural families will spend approximately $145,000. In other words, you could spend $200,000 more or $100,000 less depending on your geography and income. The above numbers also explain a phenomenon I've written about in the past. The fertility rate in America varies from group to group. Religious people, especially Christians, have more children than secular people. Also, conservative people generally have more children than liberal people. The Bible teaches us that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. As Christians, we understand that children are a gift from the Lord and thus worthy of our focus and attention. We understand that they are worth the time, effort, and cost. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Antisemitism, go to viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Uh, if you're watching on the Facebook live stream or the YouTube live stream, please share the show. Help us to grow. If you're listening on terrestrial radio, thank you so much for being here. And tell, tell a friend about Stacy on the Right. We had someone yesterday post online that she actually plays the show out of the back of her Jeep so that people can hear it just in passing. I think that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Jordan McGillis from the Institute for Energy Research. He's a policy analyst there. His Twitter handle is at Jordan McGillis. And uh, also, Energy Institute's Twitter feed is IE or IE Renergy. Oh, so IER Energy. IER Energy on Twitter. Check them out. Um, Jordan, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So let's talk about this. We've got the Paris Climate Accords. Obama put us in. Trump took us out. Now what's going on? Obama put us in in 2015. Nominally, Trump took us out in 2017, but that won't actually go into effect until 2020, the day after the 2020 election, as it so happens. In the meantime, Congress, the House of Representatives to be specific, has now passed a bill saying that they will attempt to block Trump from pulling us out of the Paris Agreement. Hmm. So, first of all, why does the pullout of the Paris Climate Accord take effect in 2020 when President Trump did that back, I think it was either last year or the year before? Right. It was 2017. It was June 1st when 
President Trump announced that we would withdraw. Uh, and the reason for the delay is simply what Obama signed us up for. As part of this agreement, um, you have a essentially three-year uh, landing runway after you decide that you'll exit. Uh, so since we, we did sign on to that, we aren't officially out until that, that date, which comes one day after the 2020 election, just coincidentally. Wow. So, okay, that's, that's really dastardly. You, you want to pull out, but you have to wait exactly how long? We, so anybody who wants to exit the Plim- Climate Accord has to wait how long? I believe it's three years and six months or something to that effect. Uh, but let's talk about the, the agreement itself and, and what it meant for the U.S. to be in. Um, President Obama in 2015 and his uh, Secretary, Secretary of State at that time um, signed us up to this international climate agreement and said that the United States would reduce our emissions by one quarter, 25 percent, uh, by the year 2025. Now, that might sound appealing to people until they hear what that means in terms of their pocketbook and what it means is you're going to pay a lot more for energy. That's why Trump wanted to get us out, uh, and that's why he has um, taken it upon himself to do so, which, of course, he's completely within his rights to do, given that the Obama administration simply signed it as an exec- executive agreement, not as a treaty. I still... I. I understand what you're saying, and I, I know you want to get to the, the specifically the um, UN IPCC recommendation, um, which is at odds with the consensus of climate economics or economists. And, and one of the things I think is really important for Americans to understand is it's a huge redistribution scheme. It basically takes wealthy nations like ours, who are the leaders in lowering emissions and clean energy and, and non-pollutants, it takes money from us and our citizens and transfers it to other nations, and it does not impact climate. So, it would, Because, hello, we're not going to be able to impact climate by moving money around. Oh, that's exactly right. The particular element of the agreement that you're referring to is called the Green Climate Fund, and that aspect of the agreement called for $100 billion, with a B, $100 billion to be essentially given from the governments of the wealthier countries in the world, which means from their taxpayers, uh, to the rest of the countries of the world. And Obama sent away $3 billion just prior to his exit from the White House uh, to that program. So what, what, is the, what else can President Trump do to kind of fix this? Because it, it looks like Congress is basically saying, we don't expect you to be the president after 2020, and so we're setting this thing up so that we can fix it, so that it will be uninterrupted. It does. It occurs to me, Jordan, that President Obama put this in as kind of an insurance policy. Perhaps he foresaw there's a you know, 50-50 chance it wouldn't be Hillary Clinton as president. And so if it was a Republican, no matter what they did, they wouldn't be able to get out of it in time to actually stop the parts of it from, that were in motion from working. Right. There's, there is that, that funny little element of it. Uh, regarding Congress, it is just the, the House of Representatives that has, has passed that measure. It's called the Climate Action Now Act. Um, and this Paris stipulation is, is just one component of it. Um, but the Senate is almost certain not to, take, not to take this all the way through. So I don't think we really have to worry about that. Um, but it is the case that uh, in 2020, if there were a, a Democrat elected, 
they would have the the option to essentially sign us back up. Um, what I propose, and I think Obama should have done this, and, and frankly, I think Trump could have done it, we should be sending these sorts of agreements to the Senate for ratification into law so that we don't have this one foot in, one foot out going on with the executive actions. If we're going to take a really big step uh, that's going to affect enormous elements of the economy and people's lives, there should be more democratic accountability. And sending it to the Senate for ratification as a treaty uh, would take care of that. What would probably happen is that the Senate would say, no, thank you. But then if it were sent and they said, no, thank you, then would that remove us from the Paris Climate Accord or no? It would do so, and it would be much more definitive than simply the president taking us out. Many people in the U.S. are viewing that as uh, a bit of mercurial action on Trump's part. They don't think it's legitimate. It is legitimate. But if we had the imprimatur of the Senate saying, no, the American people do not want to be part of this agreement, that would be much more firm. But that wouldn't affect the, the runway. Uh, now, something I should add is that this agreement has no binding element and it has no enforcement mechanism. So that 25% reduction in emissions that Obama signed us up for uh, is not actually being pursued by, by the current policies. So we're not being held to that in any way. We're just still technically a party to the agreement. So I don't want people to have the wrong impression and think that for the next uh, year and a half until 2020 that we're going to be um, under a certain set of policies. That's not the case. This is purely a paper agreement, and that's part of the reason why we never should have been in it in the first place. It has no accountability measures, and frankly, the, the entire incentive structure is off the mark. Let me give you an example. I mentioned that the U.S. Uh, signed itself up for 25% emission reductions by the year 2025. China, who, by the way, is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, signed itself up to not reduce its emissions at all until year 2030. So their economic growth is slated to continue. They're not going to put any restrictions on themselves as a result of this until over 10 years from now. So there are some big discrepancies, and it really never made sense for us to be in this in the first place. So this is one of the things I've covered on the show about the Paris Climate Accords, that, that, that little tidbit of information that you shared just there, because China, with a billion citizens, certainly could make a much more impactful uh, change to emissions or, you know, what, what, whatever it is that, that is most important about the Climate Accord, they could make a much more visible impact than we could. And as it stands, if you were to compare China to the United States, we are just like, first of all, we're tiny. We have very low population compared to them, but we're doing so much better than they are. Like if they were doing as well as we were, it, that in fact, the main target should be India, Pakistan, and China for reducing emissions and changing the way they do business if climate change is to be impacted by human action. Am I right? Well, I'm going to give a slightly different perspective. Uh, so it is the case that cumulatively the country of China has higher emissions than the United States. But if we're talking about on a per capita basis, it's not even close. The Americans use much more um, electricity, much more transportation fuel. We have much higher per capita emissions. So if we're looking at it from that perspective, there's an element of it that makes sense that if you're going to have a, a policy that applies across the globe, it should apply equally to people rather than to countries. So mm. I don't agree with that element of it. But fundamentally, 
I disagree with the entire prospect of limiting people's energy choices because of uh, climate science reports. I think that people should be free to pursue the choices in a marketplace that are going to allow them to prepare for whatever challenges they may face in the future. Okay. So you just covered a lot of information there. Um, and okay, so I do actually prefer per capita numbers on crime and statistics. I think they are a much more accurate barometer of what's going on. But in the end, it is your position that the Paris Climate Accords cannot accomplish the so-called stated goals and therefore are it's really a moot issue as to who's uh, you know putting out the most of whatever emissions because the Paris Climate Accords can't ac- actually make an impact other than to transfer money from wealthy nations to poor nations. Well, that's exactly right. And we haven't even talked about uh, the actual goal of the agreement yet. The goal is to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius. Um, and just for the sake of this conversation, let's we'll go by the IPCC uh, numbers. And what they are anticipating is that business as usual will take us beyond three degrees Celsius of warming, maybe four degrees Celsius of warming. The Paris Agreement goal is to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius uh, by limiting emissions. Now, let's look at the actual pledges. What have countries said they're going to do to get us to that number? And believe it or not, the pledges would only get us to three degrees Celsius of warming. So it's not even close to getting to its own stated goal. Furthermore, not only do the pledges not accomplish what the, the agreement sets out to do, but the actual policies that countries have in place are going to allow for more warming than the pledges. So we've got a situation where the agreement says it's aiming to do one thing, but the pledges of the countries that are part of it aren't going to get there. And furthermore, countries aren't sticking to their own pledges. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier. This is non-binding. There are no enforcement mechanisms. And when you, when you take all of it into account, it really is pointless for the United States to be a part of this. And it makes no sense for people on the, who, are, who are environmental advocates to view the United States pulling out of the Paris Agreement as being some great catastrophe. This agreement is, is achieving very little. It's non-binding. It has no teeth. So in, in the big scheme of things, the thing that we really want is for Congress to go back to, they want, we want them to reassume their power. One of the things that they're supposed to do is to enact and ratify treaties. And the U.S climate or Paris, the, the Paris Agreement is something that should have been handled through the treaty process. And the reason that it wasn't is because Barack Obama knew he could never get it through Congress. So he basically signed us up to this non-binding sham that basically works as a PR mechanism for Democrats to continue to push the issue of climate change. I completely agree with that. Uh, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution provides that the Senate will uh, advise and grant consent um, to propose treaties. So I believe, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I believe that that needs to come from the executive. Uh, I don't think that the Senate can take it upon itself to initiate treaty proceedings. It would come from the executive, and then the Senate would make its uh, determination on that. So it would have to come from President Trump, or would have had to come from President Obama. The Senate can't just do it on its own, to my understanding. So um, I wanted to go back to a little bit of the detail that you have here, um, which is this, are we, are we doing the best that we can do with, with our emissions, our um, limiting 
you know, our, our CO2, all the different things that are a part of or supposed to be a part of this climate Paris thing. Are we already doing the best that we can do as a country with our regulations and our businesses cooperating with the federal government, et cetera? My view may differ from yours on this, but I want to draw a critical distinction uh, between various sorts of emissions. On the one hand, we have greenhouse gas emissions, which are what the Paris Climate Agreement is aimed to target. Um, Greenhouse gases are not local air pollutants. These do not affect people's ability to breathe. They don't cloud the air. They're heat trapping, and that's just about it. On the other hand, there are such a, there are, is such a thing as local air pollutants, which uh, can come from smokestacks, from factories, from power plants, what have you, um, which can cloud the air, it can affect people's lungs, that sort of thing. My view is that it's perfectly appropriate, uh, when demonstrated by evidence, for the government to take part in assessing damages from local air pollution. I don't think that the government at this time has justification to be establishing federal policy on greenhouse gases. So I think you, you can draw a distinction between those two things, and I don't think that the government should be involved in, in the regulation of greenhouse gases. However, uh, as it currently stands, EPA has on the books what is called an endangerment finding for greenhouse gases. So uh, we do have extensive greenhouse gas regulation. Um, and that certainly has played a part in what's happened with U.S. greenhouse gas totals over the last 10 years, um, but there's actually a much bigger part of the story, and it's that we've reduced our emissions in the United States of greenhouse gases by about 10 percent since 2005 as a result of the fracking revolution. It's been shale gas plays that have enabled us to have lower, have lower greenhouse gas emissions, and that has nothing to do uh, with government regulation. It's actually just been a feature of the marketplace that natural gas has been abundant, and we've begun to use a lot of that to generate electricity. Wow. So uh, we're not too far apart on that. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fine with, with what you're suggesting. I'm, I tend to be a limited government person, but I also understand that, you know, there, there are certain things that I may not consider to be a government function that the government might be able to facilitate or assist or even do. But my, my default position is that the private market should kind of drive those things I just always want us to be operating off of facts, which I really feel like that's what you're bringing to this conversation, uh, especially the Institute for Energy Research. You guys are actually saying, look, wait a minute, here are the numbers. And we as Americans need this kind of factually based, accurate information so that we can be informed. Really appreciate your time today. Jordan McGillis, Institute for Energy Research at IER Energy or at Jordan McGillis on Twitter. Thanks for joining us today. Happy Friday. All right. Bye bye. All right, we'll be back with more. Stay there. I have two dogs. Sometimes when we go walking, they'll get a sticker in their paw. My dachshund will stop, hold up that foot, and just look annoyed because it has slowed her down and that she needs my help to get rid of it. The terrier, on the other hand, would rather limp along like, I'm okay, I'm just walking it off, than to stop for me to take that painful thing out of her paw. It made me think. We're like that when it comes to our relationship with God. We either have complete reliance on Him and turn to Him as soon as we have a need, or we go along suffering, trying to fix it all ourselves. I've done both. How about you? There's lots less pain and suffering when you choose to turn to Jesus right away. 
But maybe you've never made the decision to follow Him and don't know how to ask Him. This life is much easier to navigate when you're relying on Jesus. If you'd like to find out more, call 888-NEED-HIM or chat with us at chataboutjesus.com. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called Tune In. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. The Christian life is a battle. A wise soldier puts on the whole armor of God so that he is able to stand against the wicked schemes of the devil. We can have victory over the enemy when we go into the battle, not dependent on our strength, but dependent on the strength of Almighty God. The Hour of Intercession with Joseph Parker, weekday afternoons at 1 Central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Do you know what an REO is? Not that kind of an REO. Listen to this recent exchange at a House Financial Services Committee hearing with Democratic California Representative Katie Porter and Housing Secretary Ben Carson. As you look it up, I'd also like you to get back to me, if you don't mind, to explain the disparity in REO rates. Do you know what an REO is? An Oreo? R. No, not an Oreo. Uh, uh, an R-E-O. R-E-O. Real estate? A real estate organization. R-E-O. Not double stuff Oreos or cool mint Oreos. An R-E-O. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It was interesting, uh, in my view, that he even held this press conference because, as he said, his report spoke for itself. This report, 448 pages long, which was released almost six weeks ago, if it truly spoke for itself, he wouldn't have needed to speak for it yesterday. And yet, speak for it, he did. And I thought the most curious thing that he did was uh, it was twofold. He came out and said, one, we charged some Russians for this stuff. But by the way, uh, everyone, even these Russians, are presumed innocent until they're found guilty of a crime. And then he immediately pivoted to Trump and said, but by the way, this American who hasn't been charged with anything, well, we can't say he's innocent, but we can't say he's not not guilty. He, he inverted our typical standard of the rule of law, which is innocent and, until proven guilty. And he did an extreme disservice both to the rule of law, uh, to his reputation and to the Department of Justice in general. Hey there. Welcome back to the program. Um, Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a jam-packed program. And that was Sean Davis talking about Mueller pouring gasoline on the impeachment fire. Um, Really fascinating uh, information. And so we're just going to run through. I've got some audio for you and a bunch of different things that I want to kind of cover before the show is over and we head into the weekend. By the way, relaxation on the weekend. We have done a couple of little projects just before. This is a tiny little segue. Um, first of all, I did get that post up. It's live at StacyOnTheRight.com. If you want to buy Stacy on the Right show t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, phone covers, 
you can. And they're purchased through the actual manufacturer and they're shipped directly to you. Now, it's not the legacy Stacy on the Right show mug, the Heritage mug, that one that I'm showing on the live stream and that you've seen so many times. It will be available again, but right now we're selling another version of it that is sh shipped directly to you from the manufacturer, so it's pretty awesome. And you can get that by going to stacyontheright.com and clicking through, and there it is, and you can buy it, and it comes directly from them. So you choose what kind of shipping you get, priority, overnight, whatever, uh, whatever you want to pay for, because it's, it's, the shipping is the standard cost of shipping an item by its size and weight. Now, um, let us go to, um, well... Let's just quickly cover this Jill Biden thing. Jill Biden was on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and he asked her about the uncomfortability, as he called it, of her um, of what what she's actually like having done her. She, he asked her, you know, hey, um, did you what do you think about your husband? You know, people asking him about the kind of, you know, un, unrequested massages that he does. He was very, very judicious in his questioning of her. He, he, was, he was so nice about it. And so she had something to say in response. Now, I don't know if she hadn't seen her husband earlier in the week. Um, and I talked about this. This was just earlier in the week. He was at an event standing in front of cameras. And there was a little girl there. And he told her she's just as smart as she is pretty, which there's nothing wrong with that. I think people have gone too far in taking a compliment and turning it into something insidious. But he then turned her around to face the camera and she's standing in front of him and he put his hands on her shoulders and she smiled uncomfortably. So here's his wife, Jill Biden, talking about this. It's number one. I think that's part of it. And I think, look, you know, it takes it took a lot of courage for uh, for women to step forward and say, you know, you're in my space and uh and Joe heard that, and uh, it, it just won't happen again. I mean, right. he heard what they were saying, and so that's part of it. So she says it's not going to happen again right after it actually happened again. I don't think he's going to stop doing it. So, and for people like, I think it was yesterday, someone called in and said we were blowing it out of proportion and calling him a pedophile. No one's calling him a pedophile, but the, uh, the behavior is inappropriate. Is it okay to just say that behavior is inappropriate without having people say that it is appropriate? Maybe it's appropriate for you. And, you know, there are people out there who are so touchy-feely. They'll sit super close to you like you're super good friends. They'll, you know, they, they don't mind being touched. And that's fine, too. People who don't mind being touched, they want to be touched. They want to be hugged. They want to have your arm on their shoulder. I mean, you can tell immediately because I, I will sometimes when I'm talking to someone, I'll put, you know, I'll touch their arm, you know, as like a hello or a goodbye. And usually there's no reaction at all. But sometimes, like one out of every maybe 20 times that I'll do it, and I don't do it all the time, but I'll see the person kind of, they'll jump. Or you notice that when someone's handing you something, they're careful to hold it by the very edge so that they don't have to touch you. And these are people that just don't want to touch other people. They're worried about germs. They're, they are worrying about contact. They have sensory issues, whatever. I don't get offended by it, um, but... You have to understand where people are coming from. People have the right not to touch you. They have the right for you not to touch them. It is okay to not only acknowledge that, but to, to acknowledge it on behalf of children, especially who don't have the agency by which to reject adults because they're small. They can reject you 
And you can just keep on touching them anyway. And unless there's a responsible adult there to say, oh, I'm sorry, looks like she's not in the mood. Looks like he's just, you know, he's not wanting to. Or get your hands off my kid's shoulder. I mean, it, express yourself. Then it's, it's not appropriate. Um, and, and it's not okay for these kids. You can tell by the looks on their faces. That's what I'm saying to you. Okay. Uh, so let's pivot over to Attorney General Barr. He was on with Jan Crawford on CBS this morning. And they were chatting. And he said, I don't care about my reputation. He also said resisting a democratically election, elected president is destroying our norms and institutions, not destroying Trump. There's two clips I thought were super important for us to listen to because what you're getting here is the president is a temporary situation. And, and to be honest with you, full disclosure, I actually feel like I learned this in my heart when President Obama was in office. Because it felt like the four years was just going to drag on. And God showed me, you know what? Not only is it not going to drag on, you have to live your life. And it's outside of politics. So, yes, I was pretty political then. I'm more political now. But in the end, that is not my primary source. Even, even host of the show called Stacy on the Right. It's the intersection of politics and style. We talk about culture and marriage, but mostly politics. All from the biblical worldview. Even with all of that. The president is not so much a state of my being as he is the commander in chief and chief executive of this country. And I'm living my life down here at ground zero at this level. That is a part of my experience. So yes, he can impact different things in my life, but in the end, I'm responsible for what I'm experiencing. And if I'm allowing that to dominate my existence, people who are screaming at the sun right now or smearing their body fluids all over themselves in protest they are living at a level in which they live at the White House or President Trump lives in their house. And it's, it's ridiculous. So when he talks about this, if you listen to what he's saying, it reinforces this idea that, yes, President Obama was a horrible president, but we survived it because the way our system of government is set up with three co-equal branches there were ways for us to ameliorate the horribleness and effectively live through, which is what liberals have to do. Liberal Democrats have to live through the Trump presidency instead of kicking at the pricks and trying to eliminate it or remove him from office. Because all they're doing is weakening the system, not him, because he won't be there forever. He's either there for another year and a half or he's there for another five and a half years. But no longer than that. So here's number two with uh, Barr. Well, in a way, I did expect it. You because, did. Yeah, because I realized we live in a, a crazy hyperpartisan period of time. And I knew that uh, it would only be a matter of time if, you, if I was behaving responsibly and calling him as I see him, uh, that I'd be attacked. Because nowadays, people don't care about the merits or the substance. They only care about who it helps you know, who benefits, whether my side benefits or the other side benefits. Everything is gauged by politics. And uh, as I say, that's antithetical to the way the department runs. And any attorney general in this period is going to end up losing a lot of political capital. And I realize that. And that's one of the reasons that I ultimately was persuaded that maybe I should take it on, because I, I, I think at my stage in life, it really doesn't make any difference. So... At his stage in life, it doesn't really make a difference. And she then said, why? Because 
your career is over? And he said, yes. At his stage in life, his career is over. And while he'd rather be doing other things, he felt called to this position and he knew he could do a good job. And so he decided to do it. And that is a very, very, uh, it's a unique place to be. If you think about you know, like wherever you are in your career, to be in a position where you could just say, yeah, I don't know if this is going to exactly benefit me, but what does it matter? My legacy is pretty much there and people will malign me, you know, for supporting this president anyway, but I think I can do this job. So I'm going to go do it. Um, it's a very adult way of looking at things because most people look after their own self-interest and with reputation at stake, you know, it's, it's a much more difficult proposition to take a job on like this, but he said, you know, I'll do it. So here he is. He's finishing it out here in number three. I think it's important that we not, in, in this period of intense partisan feeling, uh, destroy our institutions. I think one of the ironies today is that people are saying that it's President Trump that's shredding our institutions. I really see no evidence of that. From my perspective, the idea of resisting a democratically elected president and basically throwing everything at him and, and you know, uh, really changing the norms on the grounds that we have to stop this president. That's where the shredding of our of our norms and our institutions is occurring. Hmm. And so the shredding of our norms and institutions. Now, there was during the Obama administration, a certain level of rage, you know, that we experienced on the right. Um, in reaction to actions taken by the president that I think kind of set new norms. And then in reaction to that, I, and I, I've had Democrats tell me this, so this isn't me kind of making it up. It's not an analysis. and It's an assessment based on what I've been told, what I've seen people say online, which is you treated the first black president like this. And so, and this, this is based on their perception, which may or may not have been skewed, but the anger that was felt towards him and the decisions that he made People stored that up and said, when you get back in office, we're going to treat your guy the same way. And so we're seeing the level of vitriol and hateful uh, kind of backlash towards the president. And in some ways, it's unprecedented. In other ways, it's simply a reaction to what was, to me, justified, just angst at the things that President Obama was doing. But they feel justified in their angst as well. So the key is to kind of say, okay, well, how can we how can we how can we disagree and i think we're willing to disagree but the caveat is he's the president they're saying no he's not he's not the president and we will always be seeking to remove him which is different than what we what we did to uh, president obama it was never a case of us saying he's he's to be impeached in fact it was verboten you couldn't bring it up you couldn't mention it we were not allowed to say we were going to impeach Obama. I mean, I remember people bringing it up and getting shot down. I remember being at events where the GOP leadership in Missouri, you know, and surrogates, they would say, up, oh, not talking about impeachment. That's not something we're doing. And I was just like, wow, we can't even talk about it. Um. <laughs> And that's the way it was. So in the end, he wasn't, e there wasn't even an, a, a movement to impeach him. Um, and some might say justifiably so, you know, whatever, everybody has their own opinion. But this idea that Trump has to go, that it's not just about resisting his agenda. It's about 
him not being a valid president and him needing to go. Um, notice the Republicans didn't do that back when Bill Clinton was president. He won with 43 percent of the vote. <coughs> he lost. Uh, well, he didn't he didn't have the what people felt was a mandate to be there, but he was still the president. And eventually he, they voted to impeach him, but it wasn't based on him not being a valid president. It was based on the extramarital affair he, that he had. But I just I just think it's worth the double standard. Uh, calling out the double standard and saying this is the way people have behaved and it's not okay. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're going we're, <laughs> we're gonna to highlight it. And I'm only laughing because it is so ludicrous that the report came out because I thought, you know, the report's going to come out and people are going to be really disappointed. But they talk more about impeachment now after the report has been out than they did before. And I, when I watched the late night shows like Nancy Pelosi was on Kimmel she was actually acting as if the report had completely like he's guilty, but the word guilty was not used. And Mueller could have used that word. Them falling back on this idea that you can't impeach a sitting president or you can't indict him doesn't mean that you can't make a referral to Congress for impeachment. And if that's what he felt he had the evidence to support, then why didn't he do that? So he's let them down, quote unquote, but they've let themselves down because it, there's a certain point where you're banging your head up against the wall and your head starts hurting and you can either keep on banging your head until you knock yourself out or you can stop. Hey, Democrats, stop banging your head against the wall. If you impeach the president, you are going down in flames in 2020. And as it is, I have no idea what you're going to do other than stealing the election through illegal alien votes because you got nothing to run on. Pervy Joe Biden Pete Buttigieg, who's married to a man, that's not mainstream, and Kamala Harris, hostile witness treatment. Okay, that's the weekend. Find us online at stacyontheright.com. But you can unplug this weekend, and I'll be back with you on Monday. God bless. <laughs>